Welcome to QBD Book Club, the podcast. I'm Victoria Carthy and I'm so pleased you could join me once again. Today, we're headed bush, we're headed far away, because when you read a book, you just really want a little bit of an escape, don't you? And that's what happens when Fleur MacDonald sends you to the outback. She is the voice of the outback, and we're going into the night to catch up with the wonderful detective, Dave Burrows. Let's listen. Fleur, g'day, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Good. It's been a couple of years since we've spoken. I think um, Something to Hide was the last time we spoke, but you've been probably just as busy as your characters. <laughs> well, I try to keep busy, otherwise I'd be a pest to other people. <laughs> but there's been a lot happening uh, inside your books as always, and thank you once again for, for bringing us back, Dave Burrows. But before we talk about him, um, you've long been the voice of the outback. We know we always see it on your books. But I just feel like in the last couple of years, be it people are kind of escaping to the country or whatever, we have seen so much more rural crime and remote crime. You must be loving the genre that there's so much more of it out there. Yeah, I absolutely do. And, you know, it keeps happening in real life as well. So we're actually writing about things that are happening. You know, there was the um, rural crime squad in WA has just been called in in the last two days to a property down in southwest of WA. So, you know, what we're writing about is actually happening and it's authentic. So I think that really helps. Um, because, you know, as well as being escapism and, and fiction, it's still authentic enough to know that these things can happen. Absolutely. And so much of what you write about shines a light and reflects, you know, on society. But I was also thinking, I, I think about how many sort of books I've written set out back or remotely in the last couple of years. And it does, I think, probably for the for writers, it makes people seek it out, doesn't it, that they look for, I really enjoyed that. I liked heading to the bush. What else is out there? Yeah, I think, well, we do that with all books, don't we? If we say that we, if we've read a book that we really enjoy, we sort of, well, I do. Anyway, I Google who writes like. So, yeah, um, I think that it's to do with any genre. But, yes, I know that a lot of people, well, it's still, it's amazing to think that 2009 was when this genre sort of really started. Well, actually, a couple of years beforehand when Rachel Treasure released Jillaroo, and yet it's still going as strong as what it is. It's, um, it's obviously that serious hunger for these stories. And I think, um, I guess because Australia is such a wide, vast, diverse place, and that's why it's so perfect that you write about where you are in WA because it, it's a really, I mean, Queensland, we have that here, but WA is so diverse and vast, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, so I went, I was away um, not last year, the year before. I took my camper and I went for a, a cruise around up north. And then I came back and so I saw all this beautiful red country, you know, Mount Augustus, this rock that just rises up out of the dirt. You just go, yeah, how does that even happen? These deep creeks and cattle pools and, and everything. And then I came home and I went down um, to Denmark, down on the south coast, and that's just green and it rains like in feet not inches uh, and I was saying to a friend I love what I've seen up north and I've loved what I've seen down south I think I just like Australia <laughs> absolutely it's funny you know I was working doing some work last week with outback Queensland people outback tourism people and you know we had these incredible rains and floods in north Queensland and then the outback was still having these bits of drought here and and that's the thing about Australia there are so many stories to tell and that's why what you've done has been so successful we are built on a nation of storytellers. You know, it's happened from when we were first, you know, first settled and we were telling stories around the campfire. Absolutely. You are very disciplined. We know that. And uh, two books a year. So and it's very much for people that don't know, it's very much time. You have a, a timing and the types of books you write and, and when it's all set, isn't it? Yep. Um, <laughs> deadline on the 1st of March, 1st of September, and our publication on uh, in the first week of April and the first week of November. So there's a 
real um sometimes I feel like I'm a mouse on one of those wheels uh but you know yes, well, yeah, but, yeah I, and I love it but it's yeah it certainly is uh when my deadline gets close and I'm not finished I tend to really really feel the pressure and but I do write better under those conditions which I really wish I didn't I wish I could just write beautifully the whole six months of the year for each book but I just seem to write better under um pressure so um it keeps me busy absolutely for the you can see some of your books behind me and your, your covers have always got these amazing strong women or when we're talking about those books or our others when we're talking about books that have have dave in it and um, i was really so glad to have him keeping me company again so thank you um he's such a, a wonderful character and I, I i love reading when you talk about him because it's like he's a real person to you like you know him because you're very fond of dave as well aren't you Oh, you know, it's so funny. When I was on tour in November for Broad River Station, the amount of people that said to me, we want to marry Dave Burrows, and I've just gone, mate, I created him. What gives you the right to think that you can do that? Sorry, that's just not appropriate. He's mine. He's my fella. <laughs> but it is. It's so hilarious the way that we all talk about him as if he's real. And, you know, I guess that's a sign of a good character, is it? I'm not sure. But, you know, I, I probably feel as strongly towards um, Kim and Zara and Jack as what I do towards Dave. And they're, they're, not, in, they're not in this particular book. Um, they're sort of in the November books. But, yeah, when we're starting to keep those characters coming Bob Holden who is Dave's mentor in this book you know he's a pretty special character too so um you know to have those strong characters that keep reoccurring in the book you get to know them really well and and then you write about them better because you know them better I think and and you're right in this book Bob Holden is such an important person for Dave I wanted to give Bob a a hug a couple of times because he's <laughs> he's such a, a good fellow and they're just so smart the way they go about things must be interesting for you because you write Dave on different timelines obviously as I said you're disciplined and you know your deadlines but must be quite interesting for you to think about what can I do with him now how will that impact later do you have a big storyboard going how do you do it uh how I do it is I go Ah, I've got some type of recollection I did this in a book, but I'm not sure what book it was. So I'm just going to go and get all of my books that are in this bookshelf here and I'll just flick through until I find it and go, oh, yeah, that's right, that's what I did. Okay, I'll just have to make sure I've got the names right and I do this and do that. That's what I do. Wow. Okay. So it's not, so unlike a, a you know a rock star who has to remember every lyric, you can go back and reference it and make sure you've got it right. Yeah, I had a lady uh, email me the other day to tell me that she'd read one of the earlier books, like I think it was the third or fourth book, I can't remember which one it was, and she asked a question. I said, I can't even remember what that book's about. I'll let Just let me get back to you on that. I guess it's hard too because you're always very immersed in the writing process but then you're talking about a book, you know, not the one you're necessarily writing at that time. So you have to kind of be in those moments, don't you? I had to, um, in preparation for this interview, I had to reread this one last <laughs> night because I have only just handed in my manuscript for November on Sunday. So, oh, so you're amazing. That that's your brain split in lots of places. Where we find Dave in this one, it is and obviously one of his earlier stories, and he's fairly recently uh, out of out of his divorce and in a really tricky custody situation, isn't he? He is. Um, he, so anyone that's read the previous um, young Dave Burrows will know that he has a horrific father-in-law or ex-father-in-law as it is now. And really his wife 
she has nice moments, but more often than not, she's not that nice. So they have just said that, you know, Dave, and this has been a reoccurring theme across the last couple of books, so it's no spoilers in this, but they've just said that Dave is a risk to the children because of his job. And so they really want to take those kids away and they go to all sorts of extremes to be able to do that. It does. Um, I was surprised by the kind of emotions it sparked in me because it just seems so unjust and unfair because he's such a good man and he's doing a job to protect people. But it does really make you consider what the choices that we would make in those situations. It's that time of year. Our catalogue is out now for the mums and the other great women in your life. A book absolutely is the gift that keeps on giving. It gives that woman in your life, your mum, your grandma, your carer, time out. I reckon they've earned it. So take a look at the QBD Mother's Day catalogue out now. Yeah. And you know, I've, I've talked to my detective friend about this a lot and I almost would have to say, oh, I don't know that I would be quite as severe as what Mel and Mark are. So Dave's ex-wife and ex-father-in-law, but I would have to think that I I might have to have a lot more security around my house or or something, you know, to feel comfortable that, you know, none of the, the people that get us set on, on coppers weren't going to come around. Absolutely. So we know Dave's scenario, but this book actually starts with our character Leo uh, in a pretty unusual situation and you set us up with the mystery that is to, to unfold in Into the Night. I love Leo. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's... Uh, he's um, He's in a bit of a hard place as well, isn't he? He's got a he's got a lovely wife. He's got a couple of lovely kids. Uh, but you know, the, the so where Leo turned up from out of my brain is when I go home to mum and dad's back in South Australia. There is an old pump house down on the creek, and it's green. And my papa my papa put it there, so it's got a green roof and white walls, and it pumps water. And it is the most archaic thing you've ever seen in your life. So I thought what can I do with that? And then I was there one summer and it was just crisp and I thought a fire would just repeal like nothing. Yeah. So that was that was how the opening scene for Into the Night came about. And we, we don't get really to know Leo at all because that opening scene is kind of when you set up the whole story for us. So all of our descriptions of Leo, when you say you really like him, I really liked him too. It was such a nice way to get to know a character, even though he's not around, um, through his friendships because he has this incredibly strong network of male friends. Which, you know, a lot of farmers do, uh, and that's one of the things that I like showing because, you know, we're always told that, that farmers are, you know, strong and silent and they don't talk and they don't do this and they don't do that. It's not quite like that anymore. You know, there's plenty of um, small like small communities that make sure that the blokes catch up, you know, once a week or once a fortnight and they go and they talk. And there's um, a guy called Bradley Milstead who started what he calls the six Bs, which is, I won't get it all right, but it's something along the lines of um, beer, blokes, burgers, bullshit, something or other, something or other. Can't remember. You would have start with B for beer. I just knew that. So. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> we're in the country, so you know, um, having a strong network for farmers is really important because they go through things that not everybody else understands or knows you know even as a, as wives of these guys there's still some stuff that we don't know either because they don't want to be seen as um being weak 
it's getting better. But these guys that um, promote mental health of, among farmers are really important to support and that's why I like writing about this sort of stuff. Well, you definitely did and there were quite a few occasions in the book where the, we met each of the friends who were really different men in their own rights, you know, in, in their town, but they each spoke about that kind of we've always, because of something that happened to them in their younger years, mm. we speak, we talk, we make sure we put it out there. And I really, I love the way you addressed it because you were so upfront with it. Yeah, well, we've got to be because if we don't talk about things, how do we fix? How do we fix things? You know, I've always, that's been one of my biggest. Um, when I talk about, you know, whether it's my son or you know experiences I've been through, if we don't talk, we can't fix things, and we need to tell our stories to be able to fix things. So, you know, and I guess I use uh, these a little bit to my own advantage with that as well. I love that. And I did wonder that. Do you sort of go into each one with an, a, not an agenda, but like some points you want to get across? Because, you know, in this one, be it the way look, blokes look after their health or be it dying small towns or do you sort of go into each book or are they just common themes? Well, I used to. I used to look around and pick at what was topical. When I wrote Silver Clouds, you know, we had yeah. we were seeing things on the news articles every night about this binge drinking culture that we had and, you know, towns being smashed up and, and so forth. And I really wanted to highlight that in Silver Clouds. Uh, so I, I wrote about that. But now I think I, I just write... And those things sort of seem to come out naturally. And sometimes I don't realise that I'm talking about them until, you know, I'm talking to you and you'll pick something up on on something. And, I, and I, this morning I was talking to my agent about the book that I've just put in and she said, you're talking about this, this, this and this. And I went, oh, yeah, I am. But I hadn't put it into, you know, something that we are trying to raise awareness about. It just seems that I do it naturally. And is that because you're living it? I mean, you are li living a lot of these real lives or you have lived it? I think it's, you know, you get that old adage about writing what you know. Yeah. That probably comes into it a little bit, yeah. Yeah. So tell us about some of our other characters. Jill, Leo's wife, um, she, you know, she's come from the city essentially and changed her life completely and she finds herself in a pretty pretty tricky situation, doesn't she? Yeah, I think when you move to the country it's a real culture shock. Um, you know, we don't have the cafes well, we do, but, you know, the smaller towns don't have the cafes and we don't have the, you know, you've got to drive 20, 30 minutes to get somewhere, if not longer, to get somewhere where you can actually go and talk. You know, internet is crap, their phone range is crap. So to be able to make these people feel at home, um, you know, you've got to get involved in the community, which Jill does. She just goes out there and she says, right, well, I'm here, so what do you want me to do? Yeah, what can I do? Get me into it. And you mentioned that driving, you know, this is 20 minutes away, that's an hour away. Um, maybe I guess that's what played into it, but I, I loved the way um, the pace of the bush, but the pace of the story unfolded because you can't rush a lot of stuff, right, because it takes an hour, eight hours, six hours to get somewhere. So it meant that you were able to let us really spend some time in the investigation. And that was really hard because you can't have an eight-hour conversation in a book. So, yeah. <laughs> so there's a phone call happening between Bob and Dave. Well, we're still only going to make that five minutes. So, um, yeah, that's actually really hard. When I was trying to work out how to pace it and, um, you know, get Dave to where he needed to go, but, yes, that was an eight-hour trip, or going to Perth and that's a six-hour trip or a four-hour trip, it, we're sitting here twiddling our thumbs a little yeah. bit. So that was actually really that was a bit of a challenge and I knew that I, I had um, some timing problems with that, but we fixed it in the edit. But, yeah, to make that work, it was uh, it was tricky. Um, well, I think one of the reasons 
I don't know, for me, why I love Dave, but then his relationship with Bob, but then also Red and the other policemen that they're working with uh, in the station. Uh, there's a little bit of that male stuff going on there. But with Bob and with Dave, there's a real, like, lack of ego around and kind of macho-ness about them, yet they are, they are proper men. They're men's men, but there yeah. was a lack of that kind of about them. It's really funny. The coppers that I know don't have a lot of ego. You know, they are they're there to help people. And, and more often than not, that's why they've joined the force. Yeah. Um, their connection is really strong. So, the uh, you know, if they go through something, a lot of them don't. They go to the they go to the pub and they sit and they talk to somebody that knows what it's like to have been through the same thing. So there's not a lot of well, yeah, like I said, in the in the cops that I know, there's not a lot of egos there. They just accept people as they are and they're good mates. It's interesting, you know, some of the challenges in in Leo's life are the the long hours that he works on a farm because he's running a farm for his parents and uh that kind of creates a bit of angst because he's always working and then I thought well actually the policemen are the same and actually nearly everyone in the country has to do those crazy hours that's their life you know it's really funny if they talk about farmers being you know overworked and yeah farming being 24 7 any small business is 24 7 you know me writing a book is 24 7 um so I don't know that farmers as much as they would love to have the monopoly on this (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's true isn't it one of the things you you talked about a, l- a little bit throughout the book and I think people that don't haven't lived in the country mightn't understand is that farm succession planning and, and what that actually is people mightn't understand it uh, and it's such a uh such a touchy subject you know so that succession of how we're going to hand this farm on to the next generation and you know the fact is we actually have three children so how do we that whoever wants to come home whether it's the son whether it's the daughter how do we hand this on so it's equal to the other three and then of course you know once the third generation comes along it's not just you know it's not just three kids um that you're dealing with it could be you know, eight eight cousins as such and it's all it can get really nasty if it's not done well and succession can be the downfall of dynasties of families but it can also be the making of them if it's done well because there's no blueprint I, you know every family is different you've got different yep. egos and personalities in every family but it's um it's and, and also as families evolve and I imagine over the years it's gotten harder because less people stay on the land yeah, and I think when you throw into the mix when the people, that the, the kids get married and suddenly you're bringing in different personalities from there as well, you know, whether or not the um, the girls or the guys that, that marry into the family are wanting to be involved in farming or they're not and how what the expectation is of them. Because um, when you marry a farmer, you marry the land as well, but so many people don't realise. They look at the person that they're marrying, whether it's, you know, guy, girl, and they look at that and they go, we are going to marry that person. But that person has this whole massive big area around them that uh, that they care for and they look after. So it's a, it can be a really tricky situation. You mentioned, you know, a couple of times the different police that you know and detectives that you obviously consult for this sort of thing. It is the, the type of work that, uh, that Dave and, and Bob are doing. It is a really different type of police servicing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So these guys, so I spent um, uh, two or three days in Queensland um, out with the stock squad out of Toowoomba a f- quite some time ago now. And 
these guys have to know how to ride motorbikes, they have to know how to ride horses, they have to know how to keep count stock. So if you've got running sheep through a gate, you've got to be able to count them. And they run really quick, so you've got to be pretty good at it because you have to make sure that your count is right because if you're missing 50 sheep um, but they've counted that the 50 sheep are there, they're going to have to turn around and run them back through the gate again. Do you see what, do you see what yeah, I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, they are a really different type of cop and you don't have to have you know, growing up in the bush to be able to do all of this stuff. You know, my detective mate um, certainly knew what farming was and growing up around farms, but he grew up in the city. So, and he is the most, um, uh, he knows how to ride, ride a motorbike beautifully. He goes on motorbike trips all around Australia now. You know, these skills that they've got can be learned and trans planted into the stock squad or the rural crime squad as they're known now but you've got to have these skills to be able to do it you've got to not mind camping out bush and and I always and I even thought all those things that you've just told us they need to be able to do it does kind of make them seem a bit superhero-ish you know because they are they're pretty cool skills to have Um, there is nothing sexier than a, a man that is totally capable and all of these um, yes. characters in this rural crime squad are capable yeah, that's a really, actually, you're dead right. And I love that kind of you touch on it without overdoing it, but he is quite revered, Dave, you know, when he comes across people because he's building this reputation in this book we're in his earlier years, but he is building this reparation, uh, reputation. And there's this lovely kind of, oh, there he is going on. Yeah, yeah, he just keeps going that little bit. Further. And, you know, the other thing is there's something about cops that just push the rules or bend the rules just that little bit to get the right outcome. There's something um, that people seem to like about that too. And, and Dave's very good at doing that. But what's so interesting about Dave is, is he is such a hothead in these early books. Um, and he has he mellows in the in the November books. So um to it's really good to be able to give him not a different personality but like a to be a lot more sparky and a bit more oomphy um in the in these early books and do you know what okay so now you've made me think about a few things that you said in this that i don't want to give away but it does make me think about some of the characters we come across or that he briefly encounters particularly when they're good women and that i always think oh might we see them as a you know protagonist in a different book because she's got potential and do you sort of play with those characters on the on the peripheral as well Oh, yeah, look, um, in the previous books, there's been a forensic scientist, that, or a pathologist, sorry, that Shannon, you know, she yeah, turns up yep. occasionally. She turns up occasionally. And I could see that, you know, her and Dave could could work well together. But, you know, um, no spoilers when I say clearly that doesn't happen because he's married to Kim in the other books. So, yeah, no, there was some great characters around the edges as well. And the other thing I felt really interesting is the way you kept us guessing because most people in Into the Night, they're pretty nice. You know, there's a lot of really lovely, likeable characters in this, but you knew there's a mystery. So you knew something had to go pear-shaped eventually. And it was funny to be kept guessing all the way because normally you can't stand a few people early on, on in a book. Yeah, I, that's something that I always try and do is make everybody nice because on the, I don't want anyone to know who the, who the person that's causing the problem is. Uh, sometimes I achieve that and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm a little bit too transparent and, you know, but then the editors will pick that up and we go back and we fudge the ed- edges a little bit. Um, but I, I worked out when I wrote, um, oh, what was the one that Dave was up north? That might have been um, might have been Rising Dust, I think it was. 
I love um, that you have to ask that. Or <laughs> something to hide, one of the two. Um, and, you know, the character that ended up being the very, very bad person in that, you know, um, there was no way that anybody was going to see that. I didn't see that coming until I wrote the scene. So that's where if you just make everybody nice, at some point you can just turn that on its head. Absolutely. And, and that's good, though. And also because your characters are so believable that it is always a shock. Yeah, well, I, I like that because I like that gasp factor. Like in Deception Creek, I killed a particular person. And the, the publisher came, my publisher, Annette, came back to me and she said, do we really have to kill that person? And I said, yes, we do. And she said, oh, I knew you were going to say that. And I, the whole reason, I, and that was the thing out of the whole book, that particular scene was the one I got the comments the most of. And I said, why did you do that? I said, for that exact reason, because you've just contacted me and told me that it meant something to you. That is the exact reason that I did it. And I knew that that was going to be a winner. I love it. I love it. So many, as we, we mentioned and touched on a bit earlier, you know, you have so many messages. Be Sometimes you don't mean it, but you have some great messaging and great stories and you're really good at reflecting what's going on out there. And your son's uh, doing a, having a bit of a star turn at the moment, isn't he? He is. So, Hayden, most, it's quite amazing when you go and do uh, events and, and I keep forgetting how much people know about me and so yeah. many people go, how Hayden? And then they go, how Jack? Because that's my dog, and everybody loves Jack as well. So um, it's quite it's quite funny when people ask. But Hayden is turning twenty two in a couple of weeks, and in September he is um, flying solo around Australia to raise awareness about autism and employing um, people with um, that are neurodiverse. And uh, yeah, he's because um, he's autistic as well. So you know, we're just uh, we're just looking for sponsors and getting all of that organised. We he's got. 60 stops, I think it is, and he's going to be stopping and speaking at community groups and, um, you know, places like that about what he's been through and how to how he wants to help people. So if anyone's interested, if you follow Wings Without Barriers on Facebook and Instagram, he's he'll be there and you'll be able to see his journey. And we're organising for you to be able to track him live when he actually leaves around Australia. So there'll be something on the internet there that you can track him and see where he's at. Um, you must be a very proud mama. I'm a very proud mama. I'm also a very scared mama. Yeah, um, you know, this is a pretty big, uh, a pretty big trip, and there's a lot of different flying because flying in regional areas and rural areas is a lot different to flying sort of into cities and that. And he's going to be doing some fairly long cross country, you know, at Mount Isa across to the Northern Territory and stuff. He's going to be doing some long runs. Um, my mum used to follow my my brother's bus to school. I'm thinking I can just imagine you with it in a ute like in the plane. <laughs> Well, it's the tiniest little plane. Like, he is so tall. He's so much taller than me. And when he gets out of it, he sort of unfolds himself like this grasshopper. Um, and if it gets a bit bumpy, he just, like, there's only about that much between the roof and his head, so he bumps his head. It's tiny, tiny. Well, I feel like there'll be some stories that come out of that as well. He's going to meet some amazing <laughs> folks along the way, and I'm sure when he realised that to you, it'll give you some great fodder as well. Um, yeah. Good luck with that. So Wings Without Barriers? Wings Without Barriers. All right, we'll take a look at that. But we will also say to people, pick up a copy of In Tonight, give Dave a hug, say g'day, um, and thank you so much for joining us and for all of the, the great work that you're putting out there and the great company you give people at night with their books in bed. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been lovely to catch up with you again. Thank you for your company today on QBD Book Club, the podcast. We'll talk again soon.